really good to be together. Uh, we're going to we're starting today, or today a new series in the book of Revelation, which is very very exciting. So just give me a, so I know how many people were in one of our morning gatherings. Give me a wave, hands up if you were in one of our morning gatherings. Okay, so maybe be thirty percent of you. So it's great that you're here again tonight. For those who are coming by, what we're going to do tonight is I'm going to do something a little bit different from what we did in the morning. Uh, in the morning, we kind of unpacked Revelation chapter 1, 2, and 3. And so if you missed that, you can go on, the we- on our website and you can listen in. I'm going to overlap a little bit with what I shared this morning, but actually the plan tonight, instead of just recapping what we did this morning, we're going to go a little bit further and I, I want to give you an introduction to the book of Revelation. That is, that is the plan of action. So let's pray and ask God to, to speak to us. Father, thank you so much that you're here just now. We're in your very presence. And thank you, you love everyone here. And you have a plan for everyone in this room. God, as we turn to this, the last book of your amazing book, the Bible, I'm asking that you, the author of the book, would speak to us. You know everyone here. And know, God, you know our lives and you have the best in your heart for us. God, speak, we pray. Come, Holy Spirit, reveal Jesus to us. Inspire our thoughts. Build our faith. Help me to speak. Help us to hear. In Jesus' great name, amen. So there was a pastor and a priest. A storm had just passed through the village, and they were now involved with the aftermath of the storm, clearing things up. And the pastor and the priest put a sign up, and the sign says, uh, the end is near. Turn around, turn yourself around before it's too late. A sports car drove up really fast to that spot, wound his window down and said, you religious nuts, just leave us alone. And wound the window back up again and drove on. He went around the corner and then there was a large splash. The pastor turned to the priest and said, well, that's the fifth today. Maybe we should simply have written bridges out ahead. (laughs) When people hear the book of Revelation, they think, okay, that's the book that's all about speculations and conspiracy theories and kind of the prophets of doom and gloom. But actually, that's not what the book's about. Um, The book's actually about Jesus Christ. It says in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The book is about revealing Jesus Christ. The word revelation in the Greek language is the word apocalypse. It means the unveiling. It's like pulling the curtain aside to see something you've never seen before, another realm you haven't seen, another perspective. Things, how, how does it look from above? An entirely different perspective. And actually, when you do satellite navigation, you can't navigate in street view. You have to navigate in satellite view. You have to navigate from above. And the book of Revelation helps us navigate our lives, the world, the end of the world. But most of all, it gives us a revelation of none other than Jesus Christ. And actually, that's really helpful. Because if, if the book was only about speculations and the end of the world and who is the Antichrist, if it was all about that stuff, that actually isn't going to help you in the challenges of life. It's, you know, you, you're facing challenges, you're facing tough times. How's, how's all that going to help you? And we are going to talk about the end of the world. We are going to talk about the Antichrist. We are going to talk about the number of the beast, all those things. But primarily, 
the books about Jesus Christ. And that's actually going to really help you. So far from it being a, a book that's irrelevant to you as you face the challenges of your everyday life, it's so relevant because it was written, first of all, to a guy who was going through the biggest challenges ever. He was in the island of Patmos as an exile, as a prisoner, isolated, left for dead. And Jesus figured this is going to be relevant for him. So Jesus appeared to a guy going through the toughest time of his life. He also wrote it to seven churches who were going through intense persecution. Their backs were against the wall. They didn't know whether they were going to live or die. And Jesus figured this is exactly what they need to hear. So far from being irrelevant, it's highly relevant for your life, the book of Revelation. In India, where I was last week, what highlights me in India is are those kids. And uh, it's, it's such a tough place to have church. It's such a tough place to follow Jesus. Many people have lost their lives in that area, the exact area where we were. It's a tough place to be a Christian. And uh, five of the kids in the orphanage had parents who were pastors who were killed during the persecution. And they were now looking after them. So I'm, I'm thinking, I'm a pastor, I've got kids. Imagine, imagine my kids in that situation. One of the little girls, Blessie, she actually was there when her dad died. He, he was preaching. And a mob came with machetes, took him out right in front of her. She saw it. Can you imagine how that could affect you? And yet what blew me away was how incredibly well-adjusted these kids were. One of the kids who I had met in previous visits had grown up in the orphanage. He went there since he was three and a half. He grew up there and he's now 20 or 22. He lives in Dubai now and he's got a job, but it was his holiday. So he was back visiting the orphanage on his holiday. Because where'd you go on your holiday? Well, you, you visit your family. And I asked him, what do you miss? And he said, you know what I miss? I miss the love and I miss the worship. He misses the worship. That's a great summary. He misses the love and he misses the worship because they're the things that change you. And every morning those kids wake up at four o'clock, uh, just, just like you all, <laughs> to pray and seek God, read your Bible, and they're up worshiping. I joined them a few times. I'm telling you, they're, they're not doing this like a religious duty. Oh, I've got to wake up and pray at four o'clock. No, they're, they are just, you should see, I've got little film clips on them. You should see their faces. They're like that. They're in love with Jesus Christ. So I'm telling you, the greatest thing you need in the hardest times of your life is a revelation of Jesus Christ. You don't need some pop psychology. You don't need some trite advice. You don't need some motivational thoughts, you need a revelation of Jesus Christ. And the reason I think those kids are so well adjusted, even despite the incredible upheaval they've gone through, and I'm not saying they ain't got any issues, I'm saying, relatively speaking, they're sorted. The only reason I can conclude that they are so well adjusted is that they have marinated themselves in the very presence of God. And that's where you're healed. That's where your life has changed when you hang out with God a lot and they're changed. It's beautiful. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So I want to stop there. And before we look more at chapters one and chapter two, let's zoom out. And let me share with you how we're going to approach this book, this challenging book, 22 chapters, which are, it kind of goes everywhere. If you've read the book of Revelation, if you haven't read it, I encourage you read it, read it and be blown away and be mesmerized because it is an incredible book. How are we going to approach the book in seven weeks? How are we going to tackle 22 chapters in seven weeks. Well, I'm going to propose to you that the book of Revelation isn't a linear journey. It's a cyclical journey. See, many people interpret 
the book of Revelation as if it's one journey that's been explained to us. One unpacking, one sequence of events. Starting at chapter 1, and as time unfolds, we get closer and closer to chapter 22, which is the very end when Jesus comes back. The problem you'll have with that interpretation is that at several points in the book of Revelation, the end comes, and then it starts again. <laughs> you ever had that confusion? You're reading the book of Revelation, like, well, that was the end. Oh no, here we go again. It's like, restart. It's like that, was it Live, Die, Repeat, that movie? It's like, oh, here we go again. Tom Cruise is fighting the, the bad people again, right? So, I mean, how does this work? So, end of chapter 7, God's people are in heaven. But then chapter 8, they're no longer in heaven. They're back on earth and there's battles again. End of chapter 11, God's judgment on the wicked and his reward to his people. Then it restarts. So, again, in chapter 14, there is the judgment day and the, the harvest of the earth. And then in chapter 20, you see the great white throne and the judgment of the righteous and the unrighteous. So it's like several times you see the same events. You see the same events. They go to heaven. The the evil are judged. Oh, it starts again. They go to heaven and judgment days happens. So the point is this. Instead of seeing the book of Revelation as one continual linear journey, it's a cyclical journey with seven cycles. And it's almost like there are seven camera angles around the same events, like reporters describing the same events with different pictures and different tones. So in, you have one sequence of events, which is the seven trumpets. Then you have another sequence of events, which is the seven seals. And actually, if you compare them, they're pretty much describing the exact same events. So that's how we're approaching the book of Revelation. Our, our, our outline is this. Uh, first of all, we're going to talk about the seven churches, chapters 1 to 3. Then we're going to talk in chapters 4 to 7 about the seven seals. Here's the, here's the outline behind me. And then we're going to talk in chap- chapters eight to nine about sorry eight to eleven about the seven trumpets, and then chapters twelve to fourteen, the battle, and then chapters fifteen sixteen the plagues, and then chapters seventeen to twenty this is a fun one the prostitute and the bride. Wow, don't know if you want to be at that one or avoid that one. But anyways, it will be good. And then chapters twenty one and twenty two this is I love this culmination the new heaven and the new earth and the week after that is Easter Sunday. So uh, that, that's, that's kind of what, how it's going to go in the plan. So why this approach? Well, I think it's the honest approach to the Bible. Because the Bible is a book. It's written in different genres. In the Bible, you have poetry, letters, songs, history, statistics. The book of Numbers is statistics. And so each genre requires a different approach. So you approach the book in the way the genre would expect you to approach the book. You wouldn't approach poetry in the same way as you'd approach um, statistics. I mean, you would come up with crazy conclusions if you approach the poetical language in a way that was literal. It's metaphorical. And so, what kind of approach do you have to the book of Revelation? Well, I believe it's apocalyptic and it's prophetic, and therefore it's full of pictures and metaphors. For example, let me take you to the book of Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, describing happy and good times of blessing, Isaiah 55 says the trees of the fields will clap their hands. Okay? I don't think he means literally, because I ain't seen trees with hands. Okay? If you have, you need to go to rehab. Okay? Just saying. The trees of the fields shall clap their hands. Okay? That's not literal. But we know exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about all creation celebrates when God's people do well. And then in a time of judgment, he describes how the stars will fall from the sky. So why do you assume that's literal? 
It's actually using a na- nature as a metaphor to describe when it talks about stars and moon and, star and sun, it's often talking about nations and kingdoms and empires falling and rising. So in the book of Revelation, God is continually using metaphors, and often he mix the me- mixes the metaphors. So if you, kind of get, if you approach it in a very literal way, you'll say, oh, okay, ah, that equals this, and ah, that equals this, until God mixes the metaphors, and you think, wait a minute, that equaled that, but now it can't, because this now equals that. It becomes confusing. So for example, you see in Revelation 5, the lion of the tribe of Judah, talking about Jesus, the root of David has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb. What? I thought he was the lion. But now he's the lamb, looking as if he'd been slain, standing in the center of the throne. And and then he goes on and says, and he's got seven horns. I mean, what kind of lamb have you seen with seven horns? So all of a sudden, we're we're given these confusing and conflicting pictures. Is he a lion or is he a lamb? Or actually, he's both. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's our God. And he's also the lamb who was slain. That's our God. He's majestic and ruling it with majesty and power. That's our God. But he's also humble and a servant who suffered and died on behalf of humanity. That's our God. I love the pictures. We understand it's pictorial. And, and, and sometimes it's talking, it's actually sometimes the book of Revelation flips into literal, and sometimes it flips into pictorial, but mostly it's apocalyptic and prophetic. So it's meant to be read metaphorically. That's, that's the genre. That's how you approach the genre. And so also, in its use of numbers, it uses numbers in a symbolic way. So, for example, in the Gospels, it records in one point where the, the, the disciples had a miraculous cache of fish, and it records the number. It says there was 153 fish. Now, actually, that's not metaphorical. It literally was. There was. It was the Gospels. It was, it was, it was historical writing, the Gospels, and it, actually, they caught 153 fish. Why does it describe it? It's not like, oh, 153 means, no, it's not, just, it's not mysterious. It's just there was 153 fish, and the Bible wants you to know it was a pretty big catch of fish. I've never caught 153 fish in one go. They did. That was a miracle, all right? Praise the Lord. That's what they want you to see. But when it comes to the book of Revelation, numbers are typically metaphorical. So for example, in Revelation, as we're going to see next week in our study, Revelation 7, it describes how there was 144,000 people who were sealed. You think, all right, there was 144,000. And then it goes on to say, that's, that's, he heard the description, there was 144,000, and then he sees them. And what does he see? He sees a multitude that no one could count. Wait a minute. I just heard there was 144,000, and then he saw the people that were described, and it was a multitude that no one could count. So what's going on there? Well, 144 is symbolic. It's 12 times 12. 12 represents the, the 12 tribes of Israel. And the 12 represents the 12 apostles of the Lamb. It represents the people of God in the Old Testament and the people of God in the New Testament. So 144,000 represents the totality of the people of God. And when you see them, it's a multitude that no one can count. Saved by Jesus Christ from all time, Old and New Testaments, followers of Jesus, redeemed by the blood. That's the picture. It's not meant to be like, oh no, it's 144,000 and I'm one. I'm out. I'm out. Oh no. That's the problem the Jehovah's Witnesses had because they literally took it as 144,000 until they had 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses. And then the next one who became a Jehovah's Witness, loser, you're out. <laughs> so approach 
the Bible in the way the genre expects. God doesn't expect you to park your brain and read poetry like it's statistics. It's apocalyptic. You read it that way. And actually, the genre of apocalyptic writing is perfect for describing the greatness of God. Perfect. Perfect. Is it perfect for describing divine realities? Because it's so unfamiliar. You see, if you were going to describe to a remote tribe in the middle of nowhere about electricity, okay, the perfect way of you describing it to them would be metaphorically. It would be perfect. I mean, they, they wouldn't get it any other way. If you tried to describe copper as a good conductor and here are resistors and, and, and there's electrons and they'd be thinking, what on earth are you talking about? Now, it's not because they're thick. It's just because they have no frame of reference for any of those things. So you'd have to describe it in their terms. You, you might describe it like this. Okay, it's like vines and power will go through these vines and then the vine will come into your house and it will go into like a ball which then will become like the sun and it will illuminate the whole inside of your hut. All right? Now they would get that because you've used metaphors. You've used th- things that are familiar to them. Now it's, it's not that electricity isn't real. It is very real. It's just that they've had no frame of reference for that. And so when it comes to describing the throne room of God, we have absolutely no framework of reference for that. And when it comes to describing the new heaven and the majesticness of the new earth, you ain't seen anything like it. So the Bible uses language that's metaphorical to describe something. And it's not because it's not real. It's so real. It's just using the language that we can relate to to understand something that we couldn't relate to. Do you understand? So this is exactly why the apocalyptic approach, the metaphorical approach, is exactly the right approach, and it's exactly why God in his magnificence and his wisdom has described to us eternal realities in a way that we can get. He's described the unfamiliar in a way that's familiar. And so that's how we approach the book of Revelation. So what we're going to do just now is we're going to play a quick clip that will read for us I was going to say Isaiah chapter 1, 2, and 3. Sorry, Isaiah will be reading it, (laughs) but it's actually Revelation chapters 1, 2, and 3. And then we'll just zoom in and unpack a few of those verses for us. So cue the clip. Thank you, Isaiah. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lambs. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him I fell at his feet as though dead. 
Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I have this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you're rich. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Be faithful even to the point of death. And I will give you life as your victor's crown. To the angel of the church in Pagan, write, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. Nevertheless, I have these few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Likewise, you also have those among you who hold to the teaching of Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. To the angel of the church in Sardis, write, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up! Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for you have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what time I will come to you. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia writes, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door, which no one can shut. To the angel of the church in Laodicea writes, I know your deeds. You are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. Now, because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come and eat with that person and they with me. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So chapters 1 to 3 is this amazing vision of Jesus. Chapter 1. And in the vision of Jesus, John sees Jesus Christ. And it's actually the first of seven visions of Jesus recorded for us through the book of Revelation. I'm not going to unpack in great detail the vision itself. 
I did that this morning. And please, if you missed this morning's message, download. But let me just ask the question. When John sees Jesus, where was Jesus? The answer was, he was among the churches. Revelation 1, verse 12, 13, and 20. I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. That's Jesus Christ. Verse 20 says the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Jesus associates himself with the lampstands. He's among us, the church. He is sovereign over us. He is high above us, and yet he's not aloof. He loves to be among us totally loves the church. And the Bible says he calls us golden lampstands. Golden. You think, oh, yeah, the early church. Those early, that church in the first century, radical, love it, on fire, authentic, the real deal, golden. No, it was a mess. It was hypocritical. It was full of idolatry. It was full of compromise. It was a total mess absolute mess. In fact, you read on to chapters two and three, he's challenging them because of their mess. They're totally messed up. And yet, he calls them golden. And for the last 2,000 years of church history, we've been a mess. And today, the church is a mess. And yet, amazingly, he calls the church golden. And I love that. He doesn't see us as our sins deserve or treat us as our sins deserve. He sees us in the light of the great sacrifice and the blood that was shed that declares us righteous despite our behavior. That blows me away. John Newton, who was that, that, the, the author of the, the song Amazing Grace, he was rescued from a life that was barbaric. He was a slave trader. He used to buy and sell people like they were possessions. He used to treat them like animals. He owned a slave ship. He took slaves from Africa, took them brutally treated them, and sold them in the West as if they were possessions. Many, many slaves died under his care. A brutal individual. And yet Jesus Christ saved him, rescued him, forgave his sin. And no wonder he wrote, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. It would save a wretch like me. He wasn't exaggerating. He was a wretch. And to be honest, if you're honest about yourself, you wouldn't be exaggerating if you said you were a wretch who got Amazing Grace and God saved you. I would say that about me. And John Newton said this about heaven, and I love it. He said, um, when I get to heaven, I shall see three wonders. The first wonder will be, there will be many people there whom I did not, did not expect to see. And the second wonder will be, that there will be many people missing who I did expect to see. And the third wonder will be, the third and the greatest of all, will be to find myself there. And that will blow me away, and I'll be blown away as well. I'm so grateful that heaven's come my way, all because of Jesus Christ. So Jesus associates with the church. He's not embarrassed to associate with the church, even though it's a mess. He loves it. So just to be really clear in this one, some people are interested in Jesus, but they're not interested in the church. Oh, the church is full of hypocrites, they say. They, they love Jesus, but they don't like the church. Well, you need to understand the one that you're interested in is interested in the church. He's not embarrassed to be associated by the church. He loves the church. Messed up as we are, he loves the church. And I'm grateful to Jesus Christ for that. Let's hear appreciation for him. He shows such grace towards us. And then John the Apostle, having seen Jesus, he did what we would all do, to be honest. He just fell on his feet, fell at his feet. And it says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. This is Revelation 1, 17 to 18. 
And, and then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead. And look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys to death and Hades. So, so here's, here's John. He fell as if dead at Jesus' feet. And it's just like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah had a vision of Jesus on the throne, and he fell on his face before God and said, woe is me, I'm a sinner. So why would you fall at his feet as if dead? And the answer is, in that moment, you become aware that he is supremely holy, and you are supremely unholy, and you think you're going to die, because that's what unholy people do in the presence of a holy, just God. So how does Jesus comfort him? Look at what Jesus said. How does he comfort him? He says, I'm alive. I was dead, but now I'm alive. In other words, John, you think you're going to die because you're unholy. But no, you need to understand, John, I died and I rose again. I did something for you, John. I did something about your sin. I came into this world and I actually did something about your sin. I personally shed my blood for you, John. My blood cleanses you from all unrighteousness. Unholy people get to be holy, get to be righteous, get to be forgiven. So Jesus' comfort was basically, he told him the gospel. And so if you're feeling unholy tonight, appropriately so, if you feel like a sinner, fair dues, you need to hear the gospel. And the gospel is this, that Jesus Christ, who is supremely holy, entered into human existence. He became the son of man. The son of God became the son of man so that the sons of men could become sons of God. He became a man in order to die on behalf of mankind. And the amazing thing is he took the curse of your sin and offers you the reward of his obedience. He, he took all of your wickedness upon himself so that you can take all of his righteousness upon yourself. He was bound and nailed to a cross so that you could be set free. He took the crown of thorns so that you could have the crown of glory. He breathed his last so that you could live forever. He was lifted up on a cross so you could be lifted up to heaven. This is the gospel. And it's in the context of grace. It's in the context of total acceptance and grace that he then goes on to challenge the churches for their behavior. And you need to understand that. You see, he loves you so much that he accepts you just as you are, but he loves you too much to leave you as you are. So he challenges the churches. And each one's a different challenge. So the angel of the church in Ephesus writes, these are the words of him. This is Revelation 2, verse 1. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I hold this against you. You've forsaken the love you had at first. He's hanging out with the lampstands. He ain't gone anywhere. He's not abandoned the church. He's among us even though we're a mess. And yet we've walked away from him. And he's saying, you've abandoned your first love. Come back. And some of you have done that. Time to come back. Time to come back. Time to get back on track. Time to come back to God. God hasn't gone anywhere. You've wandered. Now come back. He's drawing you back. And then he says to, in Revelation 2.8, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and who came to life again. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. You see, you know, once you decide you're going to follow Jesus, often that's when life gets tough. Following Jesus isn't the easy option. Satan takes a contract out against your life. You're out walking with a target in your back. Of course you're going to be attacked. It's probably par for the course. Jesus says, I've been through it myself. Don't quit. Don't quit. Follow me. 
And then in Revelation 2, verse 12 to 15, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, these are the words of him with a sharp, double-edged sword. I have a few things against you. You have some who hold to the teaching of Balaam. You have some of those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. And, and you think, well, what's that all about? Well, Pergamum, Pergamos, it's, it's, it's a double word with double thing. Pergamos, per means like perverted. Gamos is like marriage, like monogamous marriage. Pergamos, this means perverted marriage or mixed or objectionable marriage. And what the people were doing is they were trying to merge uh, secular, sinful ways with their Christianity. And you can't do that, folks. You, either, you can't follow Jesus and sin. You can't have both. I'm not saying we don't sin. I'm saying you can't pursue both. Even though we fail, you've got to pursue Jesus Christ. You've got to be single-minded. And then he goes on and says to the angel of the church at Thyatira, right, these are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet is like burnished bronze. I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel. And the, 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 there was an influence there. There was a person influencing the church. And you need to understand, there might be someone influencing your life, and the result of their influence is you feel less close to God, and you feel detached from the church. If there's someone causing you to feel detached from this church, you've got to avoid that influence. If there's someone causing you to be detached from your God, you've got to avoid that influence. And then he goes on and says to the church at Sardis, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up. Here was a church that was resting on its laurels based on all its great reputation from its past results. See, folks, you can't live in past testimonies. If all your testimonies of what God did in your life are 10 years old, come on, where's the testimonies from last week? What did God say to you this, this week? Rather than, here's what God said to me 10 years ago. No, now current. Are you currently connected with God? Are you living with a vibrant relationship with Jesus? And then he goes on and said to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right, these are the words of him who is holy and true. I've placed a door before you, an open door that no one can shut. And I know you have little strength. And open doors always speak of opportunity in the Bible. And he's saying, listen, I know you've got little strength, but I'm going to set before you big opportunity in the middle of your little strength. And sometimes it's the time of crisis when the greatest opportunities come your way. And then finally he says to the angel of the church in Laodicea, right, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. You're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. And here's a church that had become apathetic in following the greatest being ever. I mean, that's inappropriate. He's awesome. So it's completely appropriate that we're going for it. And this church has become placid and apathetic. And maybe each one of these challenges touch each of you in a different way. But take it on the chin. Don't take it on the chin like this is God rejecting you. No, no, far from it. This is, God's, this is a sign that God accepts you. He loves you so much. He accepts you as you are. That's his grace. He calls you a golden church. And yet, he loves you too much to leave you as you are in the context of grace, be transformed. Now, I just want to digress a little bit and say some things I didn't say this morning. I want to say, suggest to you that Jesus in this moment has just predicted the next 2,000 years. I believe that these seven churches not only speak of churches and situations that always go on down through all ages, I actually think he predicted the next 2,000 years of church history. I've just, uh, in the last two years, been lecturing on church history 
in our Bible college. Take kind of maybe six or seven days to teach 2,000 years of history. And here's how history went, and this based on these. The church Ephesus represents 34 to, 9, 50, 34 to 95 AD, which represents the church from the book of Acts to the end of the first century. And the message was, don't lose your love. And then the angel of the church, to, to the church at Smyrna, that represented the 95 to 313 AD when Constantine was converted. And that represents the church under Roman persecution. And God's message to the church was, don't quit. They went through seven waves of Roman persecution, finally culminating with Nero. And then it ended when Constantine was converted. Pergamum, 313 to 606 AD. This is where the church mixes with the state. And the Roman Catholic Church came into being. And church and state became intertwined. It was bad news. It was bad news. Anytime church and state, you know, anytime the church gets political or politics get religious, there is trouble every time. And Pergamon, remember, mixed marriage, not good. And that was that season in church history. And then there was Thyatira, 606 AD, right through to 517 AD. And Thyatira uh, was the warning against fake religious influences. That was Jezebel. And it was how the church then endured, the true church, the real church, endured under religious systems that called itself church for centuries and centuries, where people uh, who were just ungodly people claimed ruling, claimed leadership of churches, but actually persecuted genuine believers. And by the thousands, genuine believers died under fake religious orders. And then Sardis represents the period in church history, 715 to 1793, where the church experiences a reformation. Martin Luther brought a reformation. And what it was? Well, it was the dead church that woke up. He said, you have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. Wake up. And the church did. It woke up in a, in a radical way with a reformation sparked by the reformers like Luther and Calvin and Zwingli, and then the Anabaptists, and then many waves of reformation that came on the back of that. And then Philadelphia represents uh, the, the, the period between 1793 on to Christ's return. And it's, it's talking about the church that experienced revivals and missions. So huge waves of revivals and missions spread with a great awakening with Jonathan Edwards in America. D.L. Moody, this, this great evangelist that impacted Edinburgh, Campus Lang, Glasgow, all around these areas. And the great revivalists, Finney and others, who came and brought great impact to our land. And that was the message there is an open door. Even in the middle of your weakness, there is an open door. And God opened the door of missions massively. And I believe we're in the era that represented by Laodicea, which is the present day until the end. The church of the last days. You shouldn't be hot. You shouldn't be cold. You shouldn't be lukewarm. You should be hot. But a lot of God's people have become lukewarm. But God's calling us to be radical in these last days. And I want to just bring it into, into land right now by saying this. Do you notice when Jesus challenges each of these churches, he doesn't just bring a challenge, he precedes the challenge with a disclosure of who he is. Do you notice that? In each occasion, he says, here's how I want you to change. But first he says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, says the one, and he describes himself. To the angel of the church in Sardis, says, and he describes himself. 
and then he brings a challenge. He describes himself, then he brings... Every time, he describes himself, and then he brings a challenge. Why? Because he doesn't just ask you to change without giving you the power to change. And what gives you the power to change is a vision of Jesus Christ. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, We all with unveiled faces, beholding us in the mirror, the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. You see, without beholding, there's no becoming. You become what you behold. It's like you're, you're like a camera. What you focus on will develop in your life. And you might say, well, I'm not becoming more like Jesus. Well, could it be you're beholding the wrong things? Spending your life focusing on the people who let you down. Spending your life mulling over the bitterness. Rereading the emails. Or spending your life looking at the porn or the lust. Or spending your life pursuing the addictions. You, 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 what you are beholding is what you are becoming, both positively and negatively. Your vision will determine your victory. What you see will determine whether you succeed. Behold, you will become. And as you look at Jesus Christ, guess what will happen? You will become more like Jesus Christ. And that's God's destiny for you. How do you see Jesus? Well, you might say, well, Peter, I've never seen a vision of Jesus. Well, you're reading about someone else's vision of Jesus. John saw Jesus and he's writing about it. Jesus could just as easily have appeared himself personally to all the churches, but he didn't. He appeared to one man on an island and he told him to inscripturate it and then circulate it and people would read about the vision in the text of Scripture. Did you know that reading the text of Scripture has the same spiritual impact on you as if you'd had the vision yourself? It says in Revelation chapter 1 verse 3, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it to take to heart what was written in it. As you read the text, a blessing comes as if you personally were having the vision. God's words, Scripture, the book of Revelation, and all the other of the 66 books of the Bible is God's revelation, his self-disclosure, his unveiling of himself. And folks, the whole book's about Jesus Christ. He's in the Old Testament concealed. He's in the New Testament revealed. And he's the one who will make you so well-adjusted like those kids in the orphanage your life will be transformed as you marinate yourself in the presence of Jesus Christ, your Savior. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your incredible love and your amazing grace. Jesus, today I believe you still walk among the golden lampstands. You move among us, the church, your people. You circulate among us. You know us. You love us. And you're really close to us. Tonight, thank you so much that you're among us here. And in your presence, anything is possible. Thank you, Lord, in your presence, I believe miracles will happen. I believe lives will be changed. I believe people will come alive who were dead. I believe people who have been wandering away from God tonight are going to come back. Come in your risen power. Fill our hearts with a passion for Jesus Christ. Fill our hearts with a vision of who you are. Captivate us afresh, I pray. Change our lives deeply. Welcome, Holy Spirit. Welcome, mighty Holy Spirit. Have your way among us.